In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Join us in this conversation as we discuss following Jesus, leadership, and doing life with others. Welcome to the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Mark Danzi. Welcome to the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. Today, we're going to be doing something a little out of the ordinary of what we normally have done. Normally, this podcast is all about uh, disciple making, and we interview people who are doing it, who are in the in the field, in the office, uh, in their homes that are making disciples of Jesus. And today we're going to do something uh, just a bit different in that I want to share with you some principles that I've learned just directly that have really impacted my ministry, my life, and uh, the legacy that I'm trying to leave spiritually. And so a lot of that is the reason that this podcast was born, is to encourage you out there, give you something each week to be thinking about on how God has called you to live out the Great Commission. Uh, We talk about a lot of these words sometimes, but today I just want to unpack them for you. And uh, so if you ever wondered what 419 is about, it's really based on the scripture, Matthew 419. And that verse tells us that Jesus said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. We believe that that verse sums up his call for us from the very beginning to the very end. He's saying, come, in other words, the invitation to, to, to follow him, uh, the invitation to be in relationship with Jesus, uh, to answer that call of salvation, when he just says in that one simple word, come. Uh, I remember for me, it was um, October the 22nd, 1989. Uh, I was in the third floor of a, of a hospital uh, here in, in Athens, Georgia, actually, uh, when I really heard that call, come. And so I, there in the hospital with no one around me uh, to help me, just <laughs> prayed for God to help me out. I mean, that was my deep theological prayer. Oh, Lord, just help me out of this situation that I'm in. Uh, and uh, he did. And so that was where my relationship with Jesus really started. But then it, the Scripture tells us, uh, or he says there in this one profound sentence, to follow me. And what we know about following is um, following is about letting him lead the way. It's about mirroring his methods. It's about uh, talking like he talks and thinking about the things that Jesus thinks about. That's what it means to, to follow. Uh, it really comes down to a matter of obedience. And so uh, Francis Chan does this great little video, you should watch it sometime, where he, he talks about his kids uh, learning how to play follow the leader. And he basically says, you know, you can't just w- watch follow the leader and get all out of it. You have to actually follow the leader. If the leader is touching their head, then you have to touch their head. If they're walking to the left, then you have to walk to the left. And so it's a participation, and that's what I believe when we move into the second call of Christ of lordship, that's what we're doing. We're participating with Christ. When Christ is walking away, we're following. We're not a step ahead, we're a step behind. And so this one profound verse that's there in Scripture that is really what we've based our whole uh, ministry here on is this invitation of come and then follow me in obedience to actually engage. He says, and then I will make you. And one of the things we know is that as disciples of Jesus, that we're constantly being formed and transformed. I love what Stephen Machia taught us a few weeks ago when he said that revival is always initiated by God, but renewal is always initiated by man. And so this this draw to renewal, to renewing our spirits, to to, uh, renew our soul, um, what we realize in that is that that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we don't have to manufacture that. We don't have to 
you know, follow some uh, earthly leader to find that. We get that happens directly from the Lord Jesus because he promised us that it would. When he said, come, follow me, I will make you. That making, uh, he created us once and he renews us again. And finally, it's the fishers of people. Now, of course, he was talking to some people on the side of uh, the Sea of Galilee who were fishermen by trade. But what he was saying was, I want to take your career and move it to the next level, give you more purpose and significance in life. In other words, that you won't be making products anymore. You'll be making disciples. Uh, You won't be just catching fish anymore. You'll be be capturing the souls uh, of people. And so they could not have understood all that that entailed. There's no way. But they did. Uh, They followed him. And along the way, we know from the, the, the work with these 12 that Jesus did, we see in their life the transforming power of Christ that comes through obedience, which is the key, and how it leads to a life of significance. So if you're ever wondering why 419, it's Matthew 419, and it really is this simple little verse where Jesus tells them the destination in the invitation, and I'm sure that they didn't get it any more than you and I get it. And so I can speak to this personally because as a pastor now for 25 years or so, I would say that the first 15 years of my ministry, I didn't make one disciple. That's kind of embarrassing to tell you that, but it's true. I was literally working at churches that the mission statement of the church was making disciples of Jesus but I didn't know how. And they were paying me. Can you believe that? Don't tell them. You know, if you're listening out there, I just want to apologize if you were in one of the former churches that I served. But there's, there's several reasons, I think, as I look back on it, of why I never really understood disciple-making, even though I had a bachelor's in biblical education. Can you believe that? And then I went to seminary, and I got a master's uh, degree in theology and in pastoral counseling and in ministries. And I had never seen disciple-making. I know that's nuts. I had served six senior pastors. I had been on mission trips all over the world, and I still had never firsthand seen what disciple-making looked like. That was the first reason that I had never really made disciples. I just did a bunch of spiritual things and hoped that somehow God would make it work. (laughs) Um, And in God's sovereign grace, uh, he did. I mean, some people actually went into the ministry, and actually some people were uh, received Jesus as their Savior, and some people went on to do great things. But I really don't think it was because I had a plan. I know I didn't have a plan. And so it's with humility that I tell you that I really believe the first 15 years of my ministry, I don't think I made one disciple, which was the call of the church. I just... And the the number one reason, again, is I'd never seen it. No one had ever discipled me. I'd had mentors who taught me a few skills here and there, and I'd had people that loved me along the way, but I never had somebody sit down and invest their life in me over a period of time that produced knowledge and skill and character in my life that I could develop my own plan and reproduce it in the lives of others. I think that's discipleship. I think that's disciple-making. I just had never seen it. The second reason I think uh, that I never really discipled anyone the first 15 years in ministry uh, was that I just wasn't able to. I just wasn't spiritually mature enough myself. And I used that as an excuse. In other words, when people came to me with really deep issues, all I could think about doing was referring them away. Oh, you need to go to a counselor. Oh, you need to see an expert on this. Or, oh, you need to see a specialist. I just wasn't spiritually mature enough to hold their pain. 
to hold their challenges in life because I thought I had to have an answer to it. And so I, I just really think that that time, the Lord wasn't wasting that time. Uh, it was just a time of my own personal development to get to a place uh, where I was courageous enough to be a disciple maker. I could resonate with Joshua because in the first chapter of Joshua, I mean, I think it's five times the Lord says to him, hey, be courageous, be strong and courageous, be very courageous. I just don't think I had the courage enough to invite six, eight men into my life of different ages and say, I'm going to help you grow in your spiritual maturity. Just, I just wasn't able. The third reason was I think that I didn't disciple, and I think maybe uh, some of you are resonating with some of these, is that it's really, really hard. <laughs> I mean, when you are willing to invest hours of your life into the lives of other people with no guarantee that it's going to turn out wonderful, and it's really difficult to show up to that meeting every week and to be prepared and to be a step ahead. You know, they say if you're uh, three steps ahead of people, you're a leader. If you're 10 steps, you're a martyr. <laughs> and I was, I just didn't think I could even stay one step ahead. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a curriculum. I didn't have a, a desired outcome. It, it's just it's just very difficult work. And uh, again, investing that much time, uh, it's, just, um, it's just very, very challenging. I can't tell you the number of times I've driven to my covenant group uh, thinking, Lord, I have nothing. I, I, I really have nothing for these guys this morning. And then, of course, the Lord would show up, and it would be great. And they'll tell you that some, those are the best mornings. Of course, they didn't know that. <laughs> the mornings I really showed up and felt very confident uh, probably were dry and, you know, horrible. But that goes without saying, I guess. But discipleship, I'd never seen it. I, I just wasn't spiritually mature enough. Uh, it was. It's just hard work. It's just heavy lifting. Uh, the fourth reason is I believe it's it's slow and it's just not flashy. Um, you know, in the church we tend to like to you know do things that are flashy and draw crowds and people buzz about it and it's exciting and all that kind of stuff. And disciple making is just not that way. Uh, and it's slow. I mean, what you think if. If you think you should be able to take a six-week class, you know, and really grow in spiritual maturity, it's just naive. I mean, Jesus, the, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, it took him three years with these guys. <laughs> and we had a mathematician do the, do the math on what we have of his life and recognize that if the amount of time he spent with them each day over three years would really equate to about an hour a week for seven years for us. Now, we don't ask people to get into groups for seven years, but just asking people to make three one-year commitments, um, man, that is really, really a slow cooker process. But as you know, we live in a microwave society, and um, we get away from what that slow, the, the beauty and the savory uh, nature of slow cooking, the crock pot, right? There's nothing like something coming out of a crock pot. Oh, man, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. We prefer to go to the microwave. I remember um, when my, my children were little, my daughter one day, <laughs> it's a true story, uh, she wanted some uh, macaroni and cheese heated up. And I remember putting it in a bowl and throwing it in the microwave for her and hitting like 15 seconds. She was standing there looking into the door of the microwave. And I literally remember her looking back at me with like three seconds to go. And she said, Daddy, why does macaroni and cheese take so long? <laughs> she, she was having to wait like 12 seconds here. And and I think in this, in, in the spiritual world is we're that way. You know, I want a quick fix. I want a sermon. I want a book that's going to put me on the right course. And in God's sovereign wisdom, 
we understand that that these things take time. And so this slowness and the not flashy uh, nature of disciple-making, I think, keeps a lot of people away from it, especially pastors, because pastors are all about the next shiny thing. The fifth reason was, and and I think that keeps people away from disciple-making, is that it's really misunderstood. You know, why would I invest so much time in so few people? And I get it. I mean, as a as a leader of, a, of an organization or a, t- a coach of a team or uh, running a church, whatever, we feel like everybody deserves our time. Everybody deserves equal amount of our time. We can give a little here and a little there. And we never just really invest in a few people over a period of time. It's just misunderstood. Why would I do that? But what we know from Jesus's life is, is the crowds were in the early days. And as he uh, met with the disciples and called these 12 together, once he got kind of ha- at the halfway point of his ministry, he actually spent more time with a few than with the masses. I mean, if you just do the math on it and look through the scriptures, you'll see that the second half of his ministry, he's, he's really engaging with those 12, because he knew that investing in those 12 was going to be the hope for the world. It's exactly opposite of what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, I would fill arenas if I was him as, as time was closing down, right? Um, you know, hurry, get, get it, reach as many people as you can. But Jesus, the wisest man that's ever lived, we give Solomon that credit, but he didn't deserve it. Jesus is the wisdom of the Father. He actually did the opposite. He spent more time and invested in a few. And I really think that's the essence of disciple-making, that most of us miss. I know I did. I mean, I'd never been discipled or I had never seen the process take place. That's why I wasn't doing it. I just wasn't spiritually mature enough, and it was hard work. I mean, this is heavy lifting. And the fact that it was slow and not flashy, I would just opt for the next flashy ministry thing. Go to the next conference, you know, buy some sermon series online that looked really cool and and not, you know, really not make a difference. Uh, and so it was this it's just misunderstood. Why would I spend so much time investing in a few? And, and the last reason I think, and this one kind of hurts my feelings to even say it, is that it was choosing disobedience over obedience. I mean, there's no other way to say it. If you read the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, it's a powerful verse. And uh, if you're on a treadmill or in traffic right now, you know, don't look at that verse. <laughs> but wait till you get home. But I want to read it directly to you from Scripture because I think. It is, it's profound. It's absolutely profound. And it's been the now the marker of my life, uh, the Great Commission. And so just to give you some, some context, Jesus has, has died. It's after the resurrection in Matthew 28. And he's coming down to the end. He's about to ascend to the Father. And he's giving these disciples their kind of final marching orders, so to speak. And you pick it up in... Um, Actually, verse 16, Matthew 28, 16. Let me read it to you. I'll read you the whole thing, and then we'll come back and talk through it. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when he saw them, or when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There's a few things I want to just pull out of this passage that 
have been profound for me, because what we don't see the disciples saying at the end of this is, well, how do I do that? Well, what do you mean make disciples? They didn't have to ask that question. You know why? Because they had been discipled. They'd been through the process. They were experienced. They weren't experienced disciple makers, but they were experienced disciples. And that's the first step. So go back to my story for a second. I had to come to the place where I had to admit, as a pastor to a layperson, I don't know how to disciple anyone. And from that admission, uh, I was invited into a discipleship group. And so I began to go, and I'll tell you this, it took me two years, thanks to John Musselman for his patience with me, to Bill Lonis for the invitation for me. It took me two years of being in that group and being a participant before the light bulb came on. Now, I'm slow, all right? It's like my high school football team. We were small, but we were slow. And that's me. I'm not small. (laughs) I remember sitting in that group, and after two years going, aha, I get it. I told my disciple maker that, and from uh, from that day on, uh, God has just grown me in my ability to make disciples. I still have a lot to learn, and uh, I want to thank Robert Coleman for his book, Master Plan of Evangelism, which we're going to speak about a little later, um, that really shaped that for me too. But now, uh, to go back to the six reasons real quick, and then we'll jump into the scripture. I have seen it done, and because I've seen it done, I know how to do it. Uh, I'm no longer not able. I'm I'm not, I'm spiritually mature. I'm not perfect, but I know enough to lead others. Uh, it's hard. It's still hard. Um, that one hasn't changed, but I'm willing to do this hard thing called disciple making. It's still slow. It's not flashy, but I appreciate that now more than I used to. I'm not as attracted to flash anymore. I'm attracted more to substance. Uh, it's no longer misunderstood. I understand why I would invest in a few. And so for the past 10 years, for three years at a pop, I've been gathering groups of men together, investing everything I know about how to live for Jesus in their life. And uh, it has paid huge, huge dividends. And then finally, um, I'm choosing obedience now over disobedience. Uh, I'm choosing to live out what Jesus told these 12 in in the Great Commission. And so going back to the verses again, let's just break this down. So in Matthew 28, 16, it says the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Notice there's not 12. Judas had already uh, done what he did. Uh, And they go back to Galilee. That's the northern region where the ministry, the hub of Jesus's ministry was, to the mountain where Jesus had told him to go. We don't know what that mountain was. Honestly, people speculate it's the Mount of Transfiguration. Some speculate it's where it's at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus, or Peter declared Jesus as the Messiah. We don't know. But we know what happened when they got there. They saw Jesus. And their immediate reaction to seeing Jesus was they worshiped him, but some doubted. I heard a pastor say one time that the proper response to any situation is worship. If it's a great situation, we should worship God. If it's a horrible situation, we should worship God. And that's what the disciples did. They're looking at their resurrected friend, the one who had died and been resurrected, and was giving them instructions. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But the most interesting verse here is at the end of that verse, verse 17, where it says, but some doubt it. I don't know why that verse is included, but it speaks to me that it's possible to worship Jesus and doubt at the same time. It's not just saying Thomas. It's saying some. We don't know which ones. We know they were part of the 11, though, and they had been with Jesus for three years. They still had doubt in their heart, but it didn't stop them from worshiping. It didn't stop them from obeying. And so it just (laughs) comforts me to know that even in my doubts, God doesn't give up on me, nor can I give up on God. 
just because I have doubts. If the disciples had them, then hey, who am I not to have them? And Jesus didn't say to them, I can't believe you people are doubting me. Holy cow, look what I did for you. No, no, no. Jesus, then Jesus said to them, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he responds to their doubt with the reminder that he is in complete authority. Think about it this way. There's not a place in this world or the world to come where Jesus is in, not in complete authority. He is in total authority of this world. He's in total authority of the next. And he reminds them of this before he tells them what to do. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then there's this word in verse 19, therefore. I love that word. It's a hinge word. In other words, when you see the word therefore in Scripture, it means what's about to be said is significant, but it's based on what was just said. And what he's about to say is to go make disciples, but he's telling them, do this because I am in complete authority everywhere you will ever go. So if Peter's crucified upside down in Rome, if Paul's beheaded in Rome, if Thomas is, or, or they're fed to the lions, if Thomas is skinned alive in India, wherever they go as these disciples who would martyr them, they'd be martyred for their faith. Jesus was still in authority in that place. And he gives them that great promise. And that promise is true for you and I. Whether it's your office or whether it's, uh, heck, if you're sitting at the DMV. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is in complete authority in this world and in complete authority in the next. And he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In other words, leading them into faith in Jesus, uh, leading them to saving knowledge of Christ, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So there's a twofold message here. There are three things, actually. Go, the, the word literally translated there means, as you are going. Think about that. Because back in Matthew 10, he told them to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now he's telling them, as you're going, go to everywhere. That was a game changer for them. And he says, uh, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. For a lot of years in my ministry, I thought I was supposed to teach them the things of Christ. When I really understood the Great Commission, I realized I'm to teach them to obey the things of Christ. Think about the difference there. And to obey is very different than to just teach them the stuff. It means you've got to walk with them. It means you've got to invest in them. It means you've got to pray with them. Um, the word obey there in the Greek is the word tereo, and it means to, to guard carefully, to pay special attention to. So if you translated it from the Greek, it would basically say teaching them as you are going, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, listen, guard with careful intention everything I've commanded you. And then the promise, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, the thing that eluded me for so long as we wrap up this podcast is that I've, I love that verse. I love the comfort of thinking that Jesus will always be with me. But what he says here is he puts that at the end of this command. He says, go and do these things and I will be with you. You know, I'm not as convinced anymore that I can claim uh, the presence of Christ in every situation if I choose to live a life of disobedience. Now, I'm, I know that offends you uh, or can bother you to think about that, but just go back and read the Scripture. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is His. Then He gives us a job to do, and then He assures us His presence will be with us. So my question to you today is, what are you doing with the Great Commission in your life? How are you taking those words off the page and putting them into your Monday through Sunday? 
Well, if you're doing it, keep doing it. Great job. If you're not, it's time to get started. We want to help you and encourage you. So you can go to 419disciplemakers.org. There's lots of videos. There's uh, content, things that you can use. You can contact us directly if you'd like us to, if you want to have a conversation about how to start this in your life or in your church, because we want to encourage you to give up these reasons of, of not making disciples. The ex- days of excuses are over. They say you'll either find a way or you'll find an excuse. And I can tell you, for 15 years, I did ministry, and I don't think I made one disciple. But thanks be to God, he didn't give up on me, called me to it. And now my joy is encouraging you and working with others on how to live a life, how to live the Great Commission as a lifestyle. It's been great to be with you. In the next sections ahead, we're going to be breaking down Jesus's methods. Uh, We find these in a book called Master Plan of Evangelism. And it's the eight things that Jesus actually did to, to make disciples that you and I can do today, even in the 21st century. It's, it's revolutionary, but it's really not. It's, it's ancient wisdom. And so we're going to be breaking those down over the next few podcasts for you. Uh, and so send us your feedback. Uh, go to the website, contact us, let us know what's working. Let us know what you'd like to hear um, as we continue to, to try to build up the body of Christ and build up you as you are a disciple-maker of Jesus. Uh, Thank you for listening today, and be blessed. For more information, check out our website, 419disciplemakers.org. Join us again next week as we continue our conversation on the 419 Disciple Makers podcast.